Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, the wonderful Jason Johnston Yellen. Hi, Jason. Hello, Joshua Hatton. Uh, you, as this I was, is, yeah, yeah. Well, as I was saying Flawless, that, let's <laughs> cut out this drivel. Uh-huh. As I was saying that, you look, you look to be. Well, you sort of looked as if you were bracing yourself. Yes, I was. You were, you were guarding your Did loins. Did you see me up, applying the, the, the aircraft seatbelt that I have on this office chair? I've had that installed ever since I was called nefarious in an introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I, di- I didn't have anything in the hopper. I just wanted to call you wonderful. <laughs> just call me often. But we did have... The joy of one another's company in person this very week. So it feels a little different coming to our our FaceTime recording, where normally this is the only way I see your face. And yet this week, Mm. I saw you in person in Chicago. And I saw a ton of other wonderful people along with you. So now I know what you were bracing for. So for for our listeners' sake, we we recorded a live podcast at Warehouse Liquors. We were celebrating our 10th slash 11th single cast nation anniversary. And and right, so we, we got to the top floor in Warehouse. We set everything up. We tested the mics. We tested the speakers. People started coming in. Pizza came in. Bottles are ready. Everybody's seated. And I get to the point where I'm saying, hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey. And I could not remember how the intro went. <laughs> <laughs> so were you, were you seeing how I would trip it up this time? No, I'm still reeling from being called nefarious in an introduction. <laughs> Well, keep that in mind. I may have some other naughty words. <laughs> it was hilarious, though, at Warehouse Lakers when you turned to me <laughs> the start of the introduction and said, I don't know what comes next. <laughs> I don't, right? It, it's like it's like going out into public and you see someone out of context. Kind of like mm-hmm, what you're talking mm-hmm. about just now, right? Where normally I see you over FaceTime on my computer mm-hmm. or my phone. <laughs> and, you know, you see someone out of context and you don't know how to conduct yourself. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Well, it's also kind of the same when we do the live podcast. And that was the first one we'd done in, in officially two years, just over two years. Mm-hmm. And there's a way you and I speak to one another here mm. when we're just simply recording this. Yes, we're thinking about our dear listeners scattered around the globe Mm -hmm. and the fact that they will ultimately listen to a final version of this. But when the people are eyeballing you from six feet away, Uh, it's, uh it's, it's a lot. And I, I love seeing the people, but at the same time, we're running a tasting and we're talking to each other and we're taking questions from Charlie who runs dramas and, and does a fantastic job of it. He did a fantastic job with the questions oh, he yeah. was asking yeah, as yeah. well. And I'm thinking about, okay, how is this landing with people? Mm. And then 
for those in the back, are they making enough noise that this is going to get picked up on the microphones or is this just going to present ambient sound to the live pod? Like, I'm racing through a hundred different thoughts and when you and I are just sitting like this over FaceTime having a chat, all I'm thinking about is the chat that you and I are having. Yeah, exactly, as it is now. And, you know, one of the luxuries of recording the way that we do now and and have really since the beginning because we've never mm-hmm. lived close to one another mm-hmm. is we can have the conversation and I can bleep out, you know, every time you say I'm just like bleep and you say and then you say and then you say and I bleep all of that out and then, you know, there, there really is a luxury simply to going back to the conversation. And there, there are things that you say, or I say, right? And we say, let's listen back to it. And if it sounds like the joke isn't going to hit, <laughs> then edit it out. And, and there were a few times during the, uh, during the live event where I said some things that didn't hit. And uh, and I remember talking about it afterwards in a car with Elijah. And I said, geez, you know, I said X. I don't even remember what it was. And he said, <laughs> he said, don't you edit that out. That was a good joke. <laughs> It'll be the one moment in the live podcast where you play canned laughter. And the, the dear listeners will not notice at all. <laughs> They're very generous. They're very generous listeners. It'll be the loudest laugh on the entire recording. (laughs) But but it's interesting. I was just listening, and this was a re-listen to to something that came out, gosh, last summer or a couple of summers ago, where Mike Birbiglia, who Mm. we've talked about enough times on this podcast, Mm -hmm. was talking to Jim Gaffigan Mm. on his podcast, Mm -hmm. on Mike Birbiglia's podcast. And... There's a point where Jim Gaffigan says, you can't help but edit yourself in front of an audience. Yeah. And Jim Gaffigan says, you know, you know I have enough of my own jokes in my arsenal that I can pivot depending on how <laughs> a crowd is receiving me. And, and he gave an example of, of you know, doing a show the night before the, the recording. And, and he knew within one joke that they weren't there to hear anything about, say, religion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And in his mind, he just edited out all the jokes he was about to present on religion mm. and just cut to another set of jokes. Amazing. And, 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 and I think that's one of the complicating factors when you and I do a live podcast is we are getting that immediate feedback. Yes. Normally our feedback is you to me and me to you. <laughs> it's a loop. And and then and then like you're saying, there's there's editing software where we can say, yeah, that that just didn't work. Between you and me, that wasn't successful. <laughs> and, and so that you know it, or something that does get left in, if that doesn't resonate with any of, of our listeners, we don't see their faces. We don't know that it failed. Yeah. Oh, that, right? that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in the room, when we're back to eyeballing people, it's like, oof, that was yeah, that was something. Which which actually makes me think of think how many Zoom tastings and and I know our, our dear listeners are the type of people to participate in these as well and probably host some of their own. 
where in a Zoom, not everybody has their camera turned on. Mm. And so I've, I would have three or four or five or six people in a Zoom and I would watch them yes. continually. Yes. And they were my feedback loop. And I would think, is this resonating? Is this an interesting point that I'm making? Are they nodding their heads? <laughs> Are they nodding asleep? Uh, are they just resting their eyes? Are they shaking their heads vigorously? <laughs> Do they look angry? Right? Like, like just to use those three or four or five or six people yeah. to gauge a 20-person tasting, a 40-person yeah. tasting, a, a what have you. And so, I, again, live in the room, that's what we're doing. That's who we're looking for. Is who's this working for and who's this not working for? Yeah. And do I value one over the other? Yes, yeah, interesting. It's an interesting point that you bring up about the Zoom, right? Because we'll we'll have a Zoom tasting, and I think you set it up, and you can see twenty four people per page, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And twenty five, not including yourself. Yeah, yeah, correct. And and invariably, like you said, you have people that just shut off their screen, but everybody's on mute, which which I think is a good thing. But I think, but I also think it's a bad thing too, right? Because it gives the people the ability to just dip in and out of things mm -hmm. and just have conversations, mm -hmm. side conversations, and not, mm -hmm. you know, not be fully engaged. And back to mm -hmm. your example about Jim Gaffigan and Mike Birbiglia, you know, both of them, Haida and I, over the pandemic, watched some of their online. Uh, mm -hmm. stand-up shows or, you know, mm -hmm. what was Berbiglia's working it out? Or that's his podcast, but, uh, but he would work out jokes. I feel like one of his shows was working out. One of them was pizza for a cause or something like yeah. that. So he, he had a whole bunch of names for his different Zoom things. But yeah, we, we both attended them. But what I liked about how those were set up is everybody was encouraged to keep their microphones <laughs> on, but have it down to like 25% volume or something mm -hmm. like that, just so the comedians could hear the feedback, right? Because imagine being a comedian <laughs> and telling a joke and just having screens off or, you know, whatever. You just don't, you just don't get that. You're not receiving back the laughs that that you that you're trying to pull out of these people and that's going to affect your performance. And I would argue that some of these Zoom tastings that not just we do but that anybody does, I think it may not be such a bad thing to do something similar like that just to keep people engaged because I think we could and should get a bit more engagement from these Zoom events. You know, as Zoom went on, as Zoom tastings went on, mm -hmm. at first, everybody was engaged. Like, oh, my gosh, look at those humans <laughs> on my screen. Oh, my gosh, there are other people. You know, I'm not staring at my family <laughs> for an hour and a half. This is amazing. But then as time went on, you know, they were still doing it because it was a reason to try new whiskey, try new whatever. But interest would wane. And, and yeah, so I, I've thought about that a couple of times. You know? Do you remember the Zoom that you and I did together and there was a, a participant in his swimming pool. I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and he had the drams lined up on the side of his pool. And then in any kind of down moment, he would just kind of push off and just wade back into the water uh, and then just do a slow crawl back to uh -huh, the side uh -huh. for another dram. That was 
perhaps, now I'm really racking my brain, I'm, I'm making a Joshua-style list here, uh, that was perhaps one of the wackier participants I saw in, in Zoom land during the, the pandemic tastings. Look at you making a declarative statement that you <laughs> that you always warn me against. <laughs> I, I did say one of, one of. I've left, I've left that top spot to have some company. I tell you. <laughs> I'm just waiting on you saying, but don't you remember when this happened? Right. And then I'll say, oh yeah, that was definitely <laughs> the wackiest. Well, in in the live recording, you know, we were talking about whiskey ages, right? And this comes up all the time in, in a tasting where, you know, we'll often lead a tasting with a 25-year-old, a 40-year-old, some, something that's older and softer because it is a softer whiskey. And then we will end with a younger whiskey, right? Because mm-hmm. the vibrancy of flavor just changes. And we were talking about the Catoctin Creek two-year-old and I made a very declarative statement. I said, <laughs> <laughs> I thought about this on my own plane ride home from Chicago. <laughs> I said, I think that may be the best rye we ever bottled. And I said that without thinking. Now, I think it is classic Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely remarkable. And I think I think what I should have said is it is perhaps one of the more unique rise that we've bottled uh, there's that word one of them right i didn't i'm not setting it atop <laughs> i'm putting it within a grouping but i come up with this sort of uh not augmented uh modified statement because on my play in Rhineholm, i was just going back mentally through our archives <laughs> and thinking well there was that eight-year-old mgp that was just floored me and then there were the whistle pigs right and then we have this backwoods coming out and and see welcome to what goes through my head when you're making declarative statements (laughs) welcome to the inner workings of jason three names it's interesting though that you say it was the the catoctin creek two-year-old i thought on the night and and i i put up my hand i could have easily misheard you here i thought you were saying that the Catoctin Creek three-year-old finished in the Colhoman was the best rye we've put out, not the two-year-old. So the Catoctin Creek that we put in Kilhoman was a four-year-old. There was a Catoctin Creek three-year-old <laughs> that we put in... What kind of cask was it? Was that a, a white wine cask, a sister to the two-year-old? for the full maturation, and then it was finished in New Chardon. Finished in New Chardon, so we could officially call it a rye whiskey, right. Correct. And then there Correct. was the two-year-old, which was similar. 15 and 15, 15 and 16, yes, yeah. Some, it was a split some. between New Char and Refill. Yeah, no. Refill wine. No, I, I, think, I think the four-year-old was perhaps the most balanced Catoctin Creek we had done. Simply because there were new elements brought in that that seemed to balance everything out, right? Like the the bright spice from the Catoctin Creek, I think, uh, balanced out some of the sweetness from the sherry, and the sweetness from the sherry kind of balanced out some of the peat from the Kilhoman that was previously in that wood. So I would say that was probably the most balanced. But if okay, so all right, so if we're about to make a declarative <laughs> statement. In the in the scope of our three Catoctin Creeks, the two, three, and the four, for my palate, I would say that two-year-old was my favorite. Interesting. Do you disagree? Do you have a different 
take on it? Only because I wouldn't make a declarative statement. I wouldn't say it was <laughs> my favorite. You That's... make declarative statements all the time. Why do I'm you making refuse... a declarative statement about not making declarative <laughs> statements. <laughs> here, here's something else I want to quickly talk about before we go over to our friends at Woodenville here. And and this will this will actually be, I think, a nice transition. Go ahead. And it goes from what we're talking about here about a favorite and a distillery and, and what have oh, you. Oh, I'm your favorite? Is oh. Also, I clearly did not declare that. <laughs> also this week, we launched our first single cask from the Virginia Distillery Company. Yeah, we did. And it's this five-year-old American single mall, all five years in Spanish oak that had formerly held Oloroso and then Pedro Jimenez, before coming to America to hold Virginia Distillery Company new make. There's a lot going on there, right? We've been tasting it. We've been pimping it. You and I are thoroughly in love with it, thoroughly. Mm -hmm. And we launched it to the nation. And the nation had our tasting video, our tasting notes, mm -hmm. And our podcast episode with Amanda Beckwith mm, mm -hmm. to go from. Yep. And we sold more than a hoggy's worth of that release. Yes. And we had a we had a butt. The reason we had a butt is A, that's the sample that we fell in love with. And B, we've been trying to get to a point where we can actually have some bottles on the website so that j people aren't... Huh? Just to clarify for our listeners, when you said we had a butt, I just want to make sure they understand that's the cask size you're talking about, right? Because I just want to make sure people understand. butt's worth? A butt's worth. Not just a, an, an unofficial shitload. <laughs> a butt's worth. <laughs> exactly. We actually had a Spanish oak butt of Spanish this Spanish oak sherry butt. 500 liter. There you go. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I think a, a butt worth. I, I don't use that language loosely or easily, Joshua. It's only when it applies to a size. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Often large. So, and, and so I'm just hugely impressed that we have a nation who would trust us, mm. trust our palate, trust a new distillery coming into the spirit of collaboration fold. And it's really interesting. And, and unlike you, I'm not going to attach a number to this, but we saw <laughs> a high percentage of single bottle orders. Yes. Where we know for the nation, one part of that is the sharing of the wealth, right? Nation members want as many other nation members to get their hands on a bottle, give it a taste. Yeah, good on them. The other part of this is get that bottle, bring it in, give it a taste, right? Move beyond our tasting video, our tasting notes and our podcast episode mm -hmm. with Amanda Beckwith. Make up your own mind. And now by having a butt available, we can have nation members return to it and, and make another order. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that struck me about this week and about this offering is when it comes to Single Cast Nation, we're deeply committed to putting out good whiskey. 
and just like you went through this a second ago with the Catoctin Creek, right? There's there's some rye going out. We did some MGP. Uh, we've done some light whiskey from them. We've put out American single malt from Westland. Obviously Scotch. Obviously rum. Obviously other things. But it's about good whiskey. And one of the things that resonates in this conversation with Orlin and Brett is that they got into this to make good whiskey. And there are a few moments in, in our interview where we, we try to kind of volley around the use of craft and craft mm. distillery <laughs> and craft spirits. And, and they kept volleying, volleying it back with good whiskey, good whiskey, good whiskey, and, and what makes good whiskey. And, and I felt in this conversation where we were meeting Orlin and Brett for the very first time, I felt like we had commonality yeah. in our visions. And I just thought that this week with our Virginia Distillery Company release, and getting ready to talk about Woodenville, I just thought it dovetailed so beautifully around the the idea, the the issue, <laughs> uh, the focus on good whiskey. Really quickly, back to your point about craft. You're right. We we brought that up, and you'd you'd even and the listeners will hear it. You'd even asked a question about the the use of the word craft and the fact that it had been used. In, in a pejorative manner. Mm-hmm. And and I can't remember if it was Orlin or if it was Brett, but he, but he said, if you look at our bottle, because you would ask them, do, do you use that? You know, is that a word mm-hmm. that you like to use or do you try to dodge it? And he said, well, if you look at our bottle, it says real craft, mm. which, I thought, which I thought was interesting, right? It's, it's taking a word... And it's saying, no, no, no. This is this is real craft. There, there, it was <laughs> there's there's right. And and all I did was repeat those two words back to you. But it's the emphasis, right? It's it's the real mm-hmm. craft, right? Which it feels like it's saying something more. And then when you go back and you taste the whiskey, I, you know, I w- I would argue, you know, if we're if we're living here in the world of bourbon, I would argue that. Eddie and Jimmy, they're craftsmen. They're making mm-hmm. a exactly. wonderful, yeah. exactly. right? You know, um, our friends. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Our friends at Maker's Mark, our friends all around, all the, the, the distilleries that we know and we work with, they, those are true craftspeople making a craft yeah. product. It is unfortunate that the word craft is used in the negative. Similar to Scotch whiskey where the word blend is used yeah. as a negative statement. Meanwhile... They can and sometimes are better. They can be and often are better than some single malts because it's about the artistry of blending that product together. It's the artistry of crafting a delicious whiskey. So, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed that bit of the conversation. Yeah, no, I thought it was a cracking conversation. Uh, I took to them really quickly. I bought into their vision really quickly and their passion and their enthusiasm. I think our listeners' declarative statement will have the same experience as us.
So Brett, Orlin, thank you both so much for joining us. Um, my first experience with Woodenville, I want to say dates back to either 2016 or 2017. My guess is it may be 2017. We ran the Whiskey Jubilee Festival, which was New York, Chicago, and Seattle. And uh, Woodenville joined us, I think it was 2017. And now Jason would always run the single cast nation table and I would be the one going around just making sure everybody has what everybody needs and so on. And I remember going to, to your table and tasting your bourbons and being floored by its deliciousness. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I approached the table with um, a mentality of, is this going to be, oh, how should I say this? There's a lot of great whiskey being made throughout the U.S. and there's a lot of craft producers that I don't think the the quality has caught up with the amount of production in some producers and and I was nervous but when I tasted it I said man this is just an expertly made bourbon that I can sip on day in day out and then and then I want to say just the next year we heard that um Glenmorangie, or the parent company of Glenmorangie, uh, Louis Vuitton Mode Hennessy, had purchased you guys. So, so it was clear you were on to something. And so I've got to ask, bourbon in Seattle. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Is Woodenville the first bourbon producer in Seattle? Where did this start from? Where did this idea come from? Well, that's a... Uh, a long uh, question to answer probably for Brett and I, if we, if we date back to, you know, kind of this started with two best friends in a dream and, and then how we got to the product that you were tasting, you know, six or seven years later. Uh, but that's really how it did begin. We just, you know, we've, Brett and I have known each other for almost 30 years, went to high school and college together. And then, uh, you know, as we started our careers, would always come together uh, with a glass of whiskey on Friday night and, and talk about our lives and, you know, and potentially our uh, dreams for the future. And it was always that conversation. It wouldn't be great if, if we could do something together that we loved that, uh, you know, would, would provide enough income for, for us to support our families. And here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, we're very familiar with, especially Woodenville, there's 100 craft wineries here. And so we had grown up right here um, and, and seen this craft wine boom and beer, We're very familiar. So when the spirits opportunity arose, uh, it, it was not foreign to, to either of us. And uh, basically, we were both looking at it. Um, you know, Brett was kind of researching it when it started in 2009 here in Washington State. The, the, the laws had changed and I was doing the same. And we kind of just had that, that night together. Hey, have you heard about this, this craft distillery? Uh, boom that's going on and laws that are changing and um, really that that's when it started um, and you know we were kind of we did all the due diligence and research on what it took but a lot happened between then and, and 2017 to actually get the quality of the liquid that you know we wanted what we were striving to from day one um, yeah. and I'll kind of let Brett you know talk about you know our, our mentors in the production process you know once we were up and going. Yeah, so so obviously in the beginning we had this this dream that we wanted to make bourbon specifically. Um, obviously back in the day there was 
there's nothing on the internet on, on how to make bourbon. And if you think about it back then, there was seven or eight large producers in Kentucky that made almost all the world's bourbon. And it wasn't yeah. really being made in a craft environment at the time. Maybe there were some small producers around the country tinkering with it. But if you think about it, most of those secrets of how to make bourbon have been passed down from the generations of master distillers within these, these small amount of companies in Kentucky. And so we knew it was critical in the beginning to find a mentor to teach us how to properly make it from day one. And uh, in a roundabout way, we had heard that uh, our mentor, Dave Pickerell, um, had retired from Maker's Mark, and he'd been there for 14 and a half years. And he was starting to do some consulting work. Um, <clears throat> Orland stalked Dave down, and uh, the long and the short of it is, we finally convinced Dave to uh, be our consultant and mentor and teach us how to make bourbon the correct way from day one. And so literally, Dave was there the first day we hmm. were doing a mash. And, uh, you know. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, we were we were an open slate. We didn't we didn't have any any bad habits to break. So we were just trying to absorb as much information from our teacher Dave as possible. And we had millions of questions, and uh, I don't think there was ever a question that Dave didn't have an answer for. You know, I don't know if you guys ever met Dave, but uh, yep, um, the guy could he could spin a yarn, he could tell a tale, and half the time you didn't know if he was telling the truth or if this was actually something that Dave was just making up. But uh, Dave was an incredible man, and he taught us everything we know and taught us all the, the building blocks to making a quality whiskey from the start. You know, it starts with you know, your grain selection and, and your mashing process, and then your, mm -hmm. your fermentation process needs to be dialed in, and then, on, and then you get to the stills and how to properly distill this product to have the, the flavor in, in the white spirit that's going to compete with the barrel over the years of aging and turn into a magnificent product after the barrel aging process. So he, he held our hand along the way. Um, he spent, we're lucky when we got him because he wasn't that busy in the beginning of his consulting. So he spent many, many, many months in Woodenville holding our hand and teaching us all the, all the processes. So that's kind of how we got our start. And you know, when you're making whiskey, as you guys know, what you, what you make, you don't know for years down the line if it actually is going to turn out well. So having that that guiding hand with us in the beginning yeah. to reassure us, you know, we didn't we've never distilled whiskey before. We didn't know, you know, off the still when you're tasting White Dog, you're how, how would you know this is going to turn into a, a beautiful product years yeah. down the road? And so having that that confidence of Dave when he's tasting the White Dog coming off the still, teaching us how to make the proper heads hearts and tails cuts just being the guiding hand along the process and, and teaching us what we're looking for and how to make this properly was huge in the beginning so so what were the pillars like when, when he's setting you guys up and, and 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 getting you to produce a a new make spirit or, or a white dog that that he felt after years in a barrel would turn into a a, a beautiful and delicious product what were the what were the foundational pillars that you had to adhere to to ensure that um 
funny you ask that because, you know, as, as new young distillers, we had gone to, you know, different uh, apprenticeships and, you know, learning and doing all these workshops and, and uh, you're, you're taught a lot of different things. And, and basically what it came down to for us is new make off the still uh, can taste pretty good if you distill it in a, uh, you know, higher proof fashion, clean it up a little bit. But that spirit also lacks a lot of the uh, character, uh, depth, and complexity that is needed, you know, after years and years in a barrel. And so we fought that really in our younger uh, careers with Dave. It's like, man, this is, we're kind of going out on a limb here with this white dog. You know, it's full of flavor, that's for sure. But, uh, and that's when the white dog, so we were actually bottling white dog. If you guys remember about 10 years ago, everybody was bottling their white dog and selling their white dog. And yeah. And yep. so it was this dichotomy for us of what goes in the barrel versus what goes in the bottle as a white dog. Um, but, you know, Dave gave a lot of, he was really big on, you know, getting, if we're getting technical, a lot of sensory of just smelling that like he was really big, hands in the white dog and smelling. And he could really, um, he really taught us on what we were looking for from, you know, character to, or do we have, you know, where our tails cuts are being made? Do we have enough of, uh, is our distillation proof? low enough um, that we're getting the character through, but not so high that we're removing, um, uh, you know, things that we, we don't want to remove. Um, so ultimately, yeah, it was just kind of uh, best practices that, you know, that he had learned over his 30 year career and handed down to us. And then over the years, we were able to definitely refine that, especially when we saw the, the whiskey, you know, taste of the whiskey maturing and, and how it was progressing. Um, you know, kind of come into our own on that and, and, and be able to, you know, refine the products from there. So, so I, I like what you were. Go ahead. Sorry, go, go on, Brett. I was just going to say, obviously, in the beginning, um, you know, Dave came from Maker, so wheat was their flavoring grain and, and that. So he, sure. he he told us in the beginning, he goes, you, I have Maker's exact mash bill. We can, we can do that and we can try it. But he goes, you'll never out Maker's Maker's. That's that's makers. <laughs> so we wanted to try makers Mashville in the beginning. So we did a weeded bourbon and then we obviously Dave was very passionate about rye as we all know. So he really pushed us to, um, use rye as a flavoring grain. So we did a side by side comparison, taste the distillates and Orlin and I really gravitated towards the rye spice. We really liked that over the wheat as our flavoring grain. Yeah. So we made a decision very early on to focus our, our bourbon mash bill on corn rye and, and malted barley. So that was pretty, pretty clear in the very, very beginning. Okay. It, th that was actually the answer to the question I was going to pose to you. I liked what you'd said earlier about coming to Dave as a blank slate and you had no bad habits to undo, but I was curious where, where you imprinted your DNA upon Woodenville whiskey. And so this sense of going through a mash bill and saying, yeah, you could do this high wheat bourbon along the way, but here's really what we want to be in this. My other part of that then is when you started, and obviously there's, there's this sense of keeping the lights on and keeping the doors open, you're selling white dog were you also doing smaller barrels with an eye on going to larger barrels? Did you start from larger barrels? What did the wood side look like when you were busy selling uh, White Dog to pay bills? Yeah, two, two pieces. So, you know, our DNA, we, there's a lot along the process that 
Uh, Brett and I feel that, you know, we were working towards a, really a balanced bourbon uh, was what we wanted. We didn't want something overpowering. You know, we were using a higher rye content, so that was going to take care of itself in the mash bill. And then, from you know, as, as it matured, just being able to have um, every element that you would expect in a bourbon and not one uh, overtaking the other. And you know, we can talk a little bit about some of the things we do uh, as we continue the conversation to, to ensure that. Um, but forgive me, the second part of the question too, I had... On the wood side, oh, the, yeah. the smaller barrels yeah, so, early? Yeah, so we had a, a pro, just a progression in our business model. You know, we afford, unfortunately, you know, that's the challenge, Josh, as you talked about initially is the expectations of craft whiskey. And that really comes down to like the financial dynamic and time. And yeah. we, we didn't start with deep pockets. You know, Brett and I just, we really just invested everything that we had saved as, as working, uh, you know, throughout our, our young careers. And so we, we kind of had to be scrappy and, and, um, uh, and, and do the things that we needed to do to, to support w- what we were trying to achieve without uh, bastardizing the brand, if you will, and becoming a potpourri distillery and making rum and gin and all of these different products and sidetracking us. You know, we were laser focused on flagship product, the bourbon and the rye that we produce now. So. Uh, White Dog and an age your own whiskey kit early on. You know, we're thankfully the timing. I remember those. Yes, it was. <laughs> that was a, a, a big key to us being able to, uh, you know, support uh, our operations. And then we did. We went a small barrel line. We called it our micro barreled bourbon and micro barreled rye. It was, you know, very transparent about this is kind of the second step in our evolution, um, you know, aged for a uh, year and a half, two years in, in small barrels um, and, and really trying to engage, you know, the consumers with well, this is this is it's the same whiskey going in the barrel, but understand what the flavor differences are going to be. You know, you're going to be much more wood forward in this and uh, in, in, in for what it is. And then uh, absolutely in our in our flagship products, our bourbon and rye, we spent a tremendous amount of time with Independent Stave. Uh, I say humbly. Um, we help them develop their craft distillers line of bourbon barrels that they now offer. So all of the oh, wow. different um, options, uh, we worked early on with an uh, individual named Yuri De Leon. He was their wine guy, but a huge bourbon fan out of uh, Napa. And so he engaged with us. We got to use some of their laboratory equipment and uh, wood doctors, if you will, wood scientists. Um, and we basically just said, Hey, look, let's money aside. How do we make the best bourbon barrel? And, you know, really outside of a couple distilleries that had played with that, obviously Buffalo Trace has done that over the years to, to a certain degree with a different wood, you know, trying different types of wood treatments and, uh, species, um, really just tried to put all our best practices forward. So, uh, you know, we seasoned, we, we did a bunch of testing and we, you know, we, we looked at it organoleptically as well as scientifically in a gas chromatograph to see what extracts we were getting, what flavor profiles we were getting in all of these different treatments from a standard kiln dried barrel to a seasoned, you know, seasoned wood, seasoned for 18 months, seasoned for 24 months, different char levels, different toast levels, and really ended on what we've used since day one, um, which is an 18th, 18 month seasoned wood uh, prior to building the barrel, a toasted head, a uh, charred, obviously, body. We have to do that as well. Um, 
And that creates all of the elements, really probably what it attributes the most to the overall flavor profile in our matured product. Hmm. Did you then tweak the, the new make, the white dog, along the way as you were moving from smaller barrels to larger barrels? Or has that remained mostly where you started? In, in the very beginning, we, when we decided we wanted the rye as our flavoring grain, we started adjusting the ratios of corn, rye, and barley um, very early on in our first year. And uh, we settled early on on our current mash bill that we've used from day one. So it's 72% mm. corn, 22% rye, and 6% malt. Mm. Yeah, as I say, distilling-wise, though, we didn't really change anything between the two different products, which is fascinating because if you taste the two side by side, I mean, you, know, you guys have done this enough, but you, you really can get to, you know, to taste something that's aged in a small barrel and something that's aged for five to six years, like our flagship product, and the, just the difference between the two is, uh, it's a fun experiment. Mm -hmm. Well, in the small barrels, I mean, in barrel aging, you're getting extraction and oxidation. So with the small barrels, you're getting tons of extraction, but oxidation takes time, and there's not time in the yeah. small barrel to get the oxidation properties to fully integrate the whiskey and the wood together. So that's the difference in the two, the micro barrels versus our standard 53-gallon barrels. So, uh, Jason, can I pop something in here? Yeah. Now the first time he said that, carry on. We haven't been on the road together in a while. <laughs> so, so what was 18-month uh, air-dried staves doing for your barrels that uh, a standard kiln-dried wood wasn't doing? Or vice versa, what was the kiln-dried wood doing that you didn't want to be um, putting on your whiskey? The 18th month season wood, basically the wood breaks down, right? You have funguses and wind and snow and rain and all of the elements because they just basically sit in on pallets outside of the cooperage uh, to season once the, once the stage has been cut. And uh, a simple way to put it is the whiskey is much more receptive, I, I guess. Uh, things happen, I like to use faster, but more dramatically. So when you compared, um, and this, again, this is not just uh, organoleptic, you know, this is my opinion of what the difference between a kiln-dried barrel and a seasoned wood barrel tastes like. This was actually done uh, looking at the, some of the extracts, the vanillins, um, and seeing some of them in, in, this, in the seasoned wood were up to 50% higher at equivalent time frames. You know, third, three, year three and four, we were seeing... Uh, much more complexity and flavor in the kiln dried, or excuse me, in the seasoned wood. So, so, so basically, what's happening in the seasoning process, like Orland described, is is you're getting these funguses growing. It's breaking the lignin down in the in the white oak. So it's already pre-breaking the lignin down that helps basically the whiskey's extracting that into the barrel and breaking it down even further. So you know we all know alcohol is a solvent. So versus a kiln dried barrel, where the alcohol has to break that down from start versus the, the fungus has grown and broke the lignin, pre-broke the lignin down on a seasoned barrel. That's, mm. that's kind of the difference. It doesn't accelerate the time, but I think it, it gets, like Dave called it, wood goody into the whiskey faster. <laughs> wood goody. Wood goody. That was a patented Dave Pickerel term. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I like that. 
I'm still in process here, which is one, one of the things that, that our listeners like hearing about and that not everybody really leads with. And, and honestly, I, I don't know if, if you guys want to talk about it in any depth either, but yeast. And you're, you're talking about the fungus breaking down the wood, the lignin, and, and kind of, if not accelerating, maybe kickstarting the process when, when the spirit meets it. For yeast being that active component that gets you uh, a product for dis- distilling, have you done much in the way of yeast experimentation in the world of bourbon? Is it pretty straightforward? I'd love to hear more if possible. Early on in the beginning, we experimented with a, a bunch of different yeasts out there. And uh, we would obviously try the distillate and compare it. And, you know, the yeast early on just didn't have the flavor profile we were looking for. So we kept experimenting with different yeasts until we found one that really had a robust flavor. And when tasting the white dog off the still, that, hmm. that, that us and Dave really thought was going to stand up in the barrel and become a, a really wonderful product down the road. We actually tried, we tried a, a like a champ, champagne yeast, which was kind of fun just to see how that would play into the bourbon profile. It obviously is a very high producer of uh, you know, converting the starches into sugar. So you get a, a pretty high, yep. high uh, distiller's beer, high ABV distiller's beer. Um, we tried various whiskey yeasts. Uh, you know, once you get into the American whiskey yeast category, it, it, there's not a lot of differential between, you know, uh, from distillery to distillery. We're kind of all in the same family, which is with, with maybe slightly different genetics. Um, so it's kind of what we, what we found when we ultimately selected our, our final yeast uh, that we've been using for 10, 11 years. Hmm. Were you finding, you know, I, I know that's the, the term here in the United States is that distiller's beer, uh, for me, a, a wash. But uh, were you finding significant flavor differences in that stage as you're experimenting with, with different yeast? Yeah, it's not really too off the still that we can really tell once we distill it, you know. Um, mm. You can definitely see different, you know, bricks and, you know, different fermentation characteristics. But it's not until the distillation happens that, you know, you're really tasting the, the final outcome of what that yeast is producing. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I'm going to rewind it even further. I like this. We're, we're going through process forwards and backwards, right? We got to distillation or a little bit of distillation, the maturation. Then we went to, to yeast. I want to go back to the, to the mashing part of it. And, you know, our, our listeners are, are no... Uh, stranger to this, a lot of our focus tends to be on malt whiskey, and and then we will dip a toe in American whiskeys. So our frame of reference is always with with malt. And when I think about mashing within the malt whiskey world, you have your option to go with a you know once you're done with your mash, you have an option to transfer that wort or that sugary barley water into your wash packs. Uh, clear so you get fruitier components coming through as you when you pitch the yeast or you can get a cloudy wort and when you pitch the yeast you get uh, a nuttier style of wash or or um, you know distiller's beer to then distill and so my my question for you is is that part of the mashing process that consideration of 
of a clear wort or a cloudy one or you know are you distilling with grains in too like how how does the mashing play into all of this yeah so we uh distill everything grain on so the grain is in the process from mashing through fermentation and in the pot still so the grain is always in, involved we don't we don't separate out the wort or the wash like like a scottish distillery or a malt distillery would so that's how bourbon's always been made um grain mm-hmm. in and that's we, we continue doing it grain in so that okay. in kentucky they talk a lot about the stout the sour mash process yeah um, we don't we don't do a sour mash process. We do a, a sweet mash. So we're not we're not using any back set. Continue that sour mash process. Does that make sense? Could you explain that a, just a little more for our listeners? Because I, I know we'll have gone through the sour mash, but a a sweet mash is is not something we hear about a lot, perhaps because people just aren't talking about it. But is is the process? similar significantly different so yeah it's the sour mash process it's been used you know back in the day they didn't have uh stainless fermentation tanks (laughs) they were using wood fermentation (laughs) tanks they they didn't have the cleaning protocols that we have now to keep bacteria down so um the sour mash process is basically act as a ph buffer to to basically protect the next fermentation um from from the bacteria and the bugs so it's not really needed anymore. It's just done for tradition's sake, I believe. Um, so the sweet mash basically is it's a fresh mash every day. Um, we're not reharvesting our yeast. We're using a fresh batch of yeast every day as well. Um, so there's nothing carried over from the previous ferment or previous distillation run into the ne- into the new mash. Gotcha. Oh, that's that's lovely. That was a nice description, Brett. Cheers. Thank you. I wanted to move forward a little bit, if if we could. We've been talking mostly about bourbon, but I'm really curious to to hear about your rye as well, and and how that's constructed from a mash standpoint. And you know, and there's there's some producers that will do a a rye that's really really low in rye, and they'll do a rye for a bourbon drinker. Where do you find your rye sits, and how did you come about uh, with that recipe? We're 100% rye. And I think for us, you know, in our rye whiskey, if we're going to make a rye whiskey, we want it to be uh, as high a rye content as we could. And, you know, that creates some challenges that I'll let Brett, Brett speak to a little bit after talk about the product, you know, in, in the mashing process. And I think that's why you don't see it very much. Obviously, we see uh, the 95% rye uh, in a lot of brands that's produced um, by MGP. And, and then after that, you know, it, it really comes down to uh, lower contents of rye. <clears throat> One factor is certainly cost. Rye is more expensive than than corn, and so you know if you're going to fall into that rye whiskey category, um, some producers you know use that as a part of their decision making. The mashing process, like I mentioned, Brett will will speak to on on, on making 100% rye, um, and then you know just different varieties of rye and how the yeasts play with them. I, what, what's interesting for me is you know for the past. Uh, decade plus, you're kind of beating into your head that that rye is a little more feisty and, and harder to, to maybe drink. And I just don't yeah, think that's what they say. That's what they yeah. And I just don't think that's the case uh, with you know with our rye. I think it's very approachable. It's a it's a neat drinker, and then it can also play really well in a cocktail. It has so much flavor and character uh, that it can still come through when when mixologists start adding uh, you know their artistry to it. 
So, you know, obviously we're seeing a lot more and more of that as people understand how to really produce a, a really quality rye whiskey. I love that you say that because I was just taking a sip of your 100% rye while you were talking there. And the first words that were coming to mind were soft, right? And it, it, and I spot on with what you said there. We are so used to, oh, it's, it's brown grain and it brings us brown spiciness. And it's, you know, you graduate to rye from bourbon. And this is just a, a wonderful, soft drinker here. It is, is that on purpose? Is that coming out of your production of that? Brett? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we tried a lot of rye whiskeys in the beginning, and to your point, there was a lot. Of, there was just the minimum amount of rye in there to call it a rye whiskey because rye is a pain in the ass to deal with. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I, Orlin will attest, I've invented my own four-letter words while making the rye because it's such a pain <laughs> in the ass. But to me, in Orlin, when tasting these ryes that are being produced with just the bare minimum amount of rye, they tasted more bourbon-esque versus more rye because they had a lot of corn in them or a lot of malt, yeah. not enough rye. So when we were tasting them in the beginning of product development, we really were convinced we wanted to go the full way and do 100% rye, really highlight the beauty of that rye grain. And you know, a lot of the ryes we taste, I, I would get this dill note that I do <laughs> not like that dill note. And so... Okay. You know, how are we going to make a rye that doesn't have that dill note? Well, our ryes never, ever had that dill note. I don't know what to attribute that to. If it's the rye our farmer grows for us, if it's our controlled fermentations, it's the way we distill it. But I've never picked up that dill note in our rye whiskey. And it, it I, I agree. We, we wanted to make rye an approachable spirit. And some ryes can be very harsh and unapproachable. And, I, and mm-hmm. to your point, Jason, it, it is very very soft, easy drinking uh, whiskey. So you're not pitching pickle juice in with the mash, <laughs> is, is what you're saying. Correct. Yeah, I'm not a pickle fan. That's where that dill note gets me. <laughs> what, what, I, what I like about this is it's not just that it's soft. Is there, There's a really pleasant drying characteristic to it on the finish that is just really enjoyable. Um, I finished the bourbon while while y'all were talking before, and I just poured this rye, and it, it's been a really nice one to sip on. Yeah, it's really grain forward as well. Mm-hmm. Like if if you wanted to take ownership for having a hundred percent rye, I think you've delivered on on what's made it into the bottle on that one. Uh, so I think with the uh, yeah. with the rye, um, just from a from a white dog distillate standpoint, rye tastes significantly better off the still. It, it doesn't have the corn can can you know create a little bit more of uh, the, the young characteristic that you that you taste, um, but rye is much more refined. And so, exactly to your point, you know, we've had some of our rye that's aged a little longer, and it starts that grain character that's you know so prevalent in in it starts to kind of go away. The barrel starts to overtake it a little bit. And so definitely like that balance of, you know, where it's at in age and maturity and, and still getting a little bit of that grain profile coming through without tasting young. Mm-hmm. Well, and it takes me back to what you'd said earlier about looking to create a product with balance. And, and I'm sure a lot of people come along and talk about balance, but in tasting this, and I'd asked you earlier about Woodenville DNA as well, if you're really taking ownership for balance, and as I taste this rye, there's no one element 
really overwhelms the experience. There's not too much wood coming in and overframing. There's not too much grain coming in and you lose some of that wood. There's a, a pleasant spice, but certainly not a, a, you know, an, an overbearing spice that we talked about. It really is sitting in harmony. It feels like a very well-crafted rye whiskey. Mm. I'll, I'll agree with everything you just said there, Jason. Well, thank you. They're Appreciate blushing it. just for the benefit of the listeners. They're <laughs> blushing continue, like please. nobody's business right now. Please continue. Please continue. <laughs> He's almost there, Jason. Um, so, you know, we started off the, the conversation where I feel as if something I said may have sounded as if I was shitting a bit on on the craft whiskey movement within the U.S. And, and I hope it didn't come off that way. It truly wasn't my intent. But all one needs to do is hop on Facebook or Twitter or some sort of online platform where you get a lot of bourbon traditionalists who are just that, bourbon traditionalists. And if it's not made in Kentucky or, or you know, out of coming out of MGP in Indiana... They're hesitant. And so, you know, just back to your beginnings as a distillery, a bourbon distillery, bourbon rye distillery out of Seattle, what challenges have you been facing over the years um, in, in trying to get the attention of the traditionalist? And are you seeing those successes? Are you still pushing water uphill what, what does that look like <laughs> if i had a dollar for the for what you said to begin with about you know, the expectations of what you know of a craft whiskey man it would it would, it would be a, a large uh, wallet but we brett and i heard that <laughs> we, i wanted to back up and address this when you first said it you know when you're talking about you know how did we get here brett and i heard that loud and clear we were the guys on these forums we were whiskey drinkers i mean we've tried we've, we've mm. dr- drinking all of this <laughs> in, in before we were making our own products so it, you, we had always had that litmus test, like would I pay forty, fifty dollars of my hard-earned money for what we're putting in a bottle right now? Yeah. And if yep. you can't look yourself in the mm-hmm. eye, you know, yeah, you, your family's always telling you this is great, and your friends and all that. But at the end of the day, you can't lie to yourself. Yeah. And and we, you know, yeah. just like until we had a product that we felt could pass that test, we weren't going to put it in a bottle. And so, um, you know, absolutely, that was, that was almost a challenge to us early on because this is your, that sentiment's going on, been going on for quite some time, and, and we we didn't want to be a part of that. And, and we did fight it a little bit with the small barrels, but we were trying to, you know, have people understand our evolution here. Like, look, we're, we're, we're kind of here's here's unaged whiskey, here's small barreled whiskey, and but we're really working to get towards a fully matured whiskey that compete that can compete with the best of the best. And that really comes down to time. At the end of the day, it just, you know, to, to have a, a, a whiskey that's matured five to six years that can compete with, you know, uh, the ones that are, are competitive set, set on the shelf, um, it just it just takes some time. And that's the biggest challenge in, in craft <laughs> whiskey and in just distilleries in general. That's why you haven't seen very many distilleries, you know, since Prohibition just pop up out of the blue because of the financial challenges of making product every single day for years and years and years and not selling the vast majority of it, you know, until it, until year six, five, six. Mm -hmm. So are you still fighting that? Do you still have people saying, well, you know, it's, it's not wild Turkey. It's, it's not Buffalo trace. Um, or, and, and, and we keep on going back to a conversation that we had with the folks at Bespoken 
and and Jason brings it up. I've been bringing it up now again, now and again as well, where the whiskey drinking community is is not a monolith. And so the <laughs> the question is, is that even your market? I, I think I think your whiskeys fit well within the category of, you know that this tastes like a traditional product. You know, this is fantastic, but you're producing it in a non-traditional state and you're, you don't have the hundreds of years of history or decades of history, you know, depending on the distillery that they have. And so, and so I'm just curious where you're finding yourselves as, as you break into more markets. I, I think for me, um, till the day I die, someone was going to say they won't drink it because it's not made in Kentucky. There's those purists out there. You're never going to change their mind no matter what. But I think that for me, the biggest um, eye-opener was, you know, we were only selling our products in Washington State until 2018. And that's when we moved yeah. into our first market out of the state and moved into California. And so Orland and I flew down there, and the plan was for us to go meet some key accounts and taste them on our products. And I, I think we had the conversation was like, have we been successful? Because... You know, we had the support of our, we're the hometown guys and we had the support of Washington. How are we going to fare outside in a, in a whole new market being a, a bourbon and a rye whiskey, not from Kentucky? And yeah. it was a little nerve wracking when you're walking into some of these, these big uh, liquor buyers and they're tasting your product and you're waiting for their reaction. Are they going to spit it out? Are they going to say this is crap? And I, it, it blew me away. The responses I got from, from all these meetings, these guys would taste the whiskey and the look on their face was utter shock because they, they expected it to not be good. In their mind, they, they, they had already made their mind up it wasn't going to be good. It's a craft whiskey made in Seattle. This is not going to be good. And they were the, the reactions and the surprise and how blown away they were by the, the flavor and how well the product was made was, was kind of an affirmation for Orlin and I that, all right, we really did make something that was excellent and was, yeah. we're very proud of. Real quick yeah. story. I remember one particular bar at a very, very uh, well-respected thought leader whiskey bar in San Francisco. And we would sit, you know, we'd, we'd go in and we sat down and I'd introduce myself and, and do the, the the dog and pony show. Hi, I'm, you know, I'm Orlin. I'm the co-founder of Woodenville. Uh, we make everything from grain to bottle in, in Washington State. You know, we, we, we grow our grains on the Alma family farm. We mash, distill age in Woodenville products age for five to six years and I would love for you to try it and you know it just you could tell they weren't really paying attention I just told them all these details for five or ten minutes and then smell and taste and you say you know it's like so where do you make this and you make this where, where did you buy, where, where did you buy this did this come from who you know it's like this, the two he had no connection between the two whatsoever uh, until finally, you know, obviously we we, uh, we connected it for him and, and it was, you know, we've had a great relationship with him ever since. It's, you know, the, those big wins, it's funny, you get into a handful of those key accounts and everybody that everybody looks up to uh, as thought leaders in the whiskey community, you know, in those yeah. metro areas and it just takes off from there. Well, and, and, and that kind of ties in with, with what I'm curious about, which is, the way Joshua described it, and you chaps both lived it, the word craft was used in the pejorative. And it was kind of a, a shorthand, an easy way to dismiss someone. Do you, and this could be a, a multifaceted answer here, but 
Do you use the word craft? Do you have need for the word craft? Do you want to retake the word craft? Or, or are you in a, a different plane? Like, is the fact that we keep talking about craft a 10-year-old conversation and the industry itself, the market itself, has evolved beyond that? What's your position on that? Well, I think if you look at our bottle, it says not craft whiskey, it says real craft whiskey. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Craft has gotten a bad connotation over the last 10 years. Everybody's aware of that. And so we were like, all right, we are we are making bourbon in a craft environment. You know, we, we don't have giant four-story tall column stills. We're doing batch distillation. I mean, we're, everything we're doing is, is in a craft environment. So we're like, we're considered craft, but we're real craft whiskey is kind of our tagline on our bottle and our, all of our cases. And, you know, it's for me, it comes down to a, f- a fair amount of semantics at the end of the day. And, you know, I don't remember who it was that used this analogy, but to tell Jimmy Russell that what he's doing isn't craft would be, you know, a slap in the <laughs> right. face. So, you know, there's a lot of these um, uh, distilleries that huge distillers, as we know, making incredible products and they have been for quite some time. So this isn't really like, you know, trying to to say that craft is better. But I, I, for me, I think it's more about craft can be creative. The terroir, mm. we have a little bit more flexibility in, in, in you know, somewhere where you're sometimes bound to tradition where, you know, we can age whiskey in Washington state and it can take on the terroir of a drier, warmer climate in Eastern Washington. And we can see the differences, you know, if our whiskey were aging in, 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 in Kentucky, it would, it would taste different than it does here uh, in mm. Washington state. And so embracing those types of, you know, that, that craft is, is going to be a little bit outside of the box, I, I really think is what it's all about. And the stigma certainly exists to some degree, but, you know, it's not just us that we're not the only craft distillery putting out some, you know, really good products and they're being recognized. You know, there's, I think there's a couple handful, dozen distilleries throughout the country that are doing really, that are making their own product. They're do, doing good things and are being recognized for it by, you know, the, the, the larger whiskey thought leaders. And that's kind of, to my mind, the the stratification of the industry, where a decade ago when you come in, you're not in Kentucky. You're, you're not a, a massive distillery with multiple decades of history. But over these 10 years, you're not a craft distiller just in the door making this up today and figuring this out. You're 10 years into this. I've got Catoctin Creek just up the road from me with Becky and Scott Harris, and they're a decade into this. And so do do you think there is this stratification where, look, we'll never be Kentucky. We might have the history, you know, another 50, 60, 70 years in the future, but we're not going to do what Kentucky's doing. We're doing what we're doing in Woodenville, at Woodenville. Can you take control of that level of it that layer of it and make that your own is that even a goal no doubt now look now we're both quiet uh it's like <laughs> <laughs> i thought the elk behind brett was going to start talking <laughs> after a few too many whiskeys it does <laughs> yeah really just uh Certainly, you know, 
to your first point, uh, you know, American whiskey or craft whiskey distilleries coming of age uh, certainly, you know, has changed the dynamic where more mature product and, you know, um, you know, that's a that's a big element to it. But, you know, Brett and I have uh, kind of this saying where we are paying respect to the, to the time honored traditions of bourbon production that are absolutely, you know, ingrained in, in American his, history even in a craft environment and you know how can we apply best practices to all of that so using a state grown grain on our, our farm we know knowing the exact you know specs on everything to the mashing process to the controlled fermentation to the hand distillation process to the barrels that we use you know and not to say that this isn't done in, in the macro environment but you know every piece of every piece of our production process is analyzed on how we can do it the best way possible yeah mm-hmm. yeah and, and- you know, there's. I loved how you started the conversation when when we asked about your beginnings, and obviously you led with your story, but you immediately brought in. Um, oh Jesus Christ! Why am I having such a brain fart? Dave Pickerel. Yeah, Dave Pickerel. I've, I've drunk with Dave. I slept in his room. Not his, not like that. I slept in his room at. Uh, at Can the I slip this in? Or the mm-hmm. uh, whistle pig house. Anyway. You know, and your story sounds a, l- a little bit like Hill Rock, and, it, and it's clear he's done wonderful things with Hill Rock. He's done wonderful things with you. I, I think, you know, as I step back and I think about not just Woodenville as as a bourbon producer or Hill Rock as a bourbon producer, both being, you know, pickerel projects, but globally speaking, you have distilleries around the world that have have had wonderful mentors that are deserved of, of praise. You know, you think of all the Jim Swan distilleries in, in Israel and in Wales and in Taiwan and Malcolm Rennie in Scotland getting some of those distilleries up and running. Um, but I think what, what has you guys stand out in my mind is back to some of the farming that you talked about. And so this is a two-parter. Was Dave working with you guys before Hill Rock? Because I know you're you're both um, doing your own farming, and is is that where you guys came from? Were you farmers before this, and then brought that in to produce your whiskey? Because I realize we didn't touch on that side of your origin story. Uh, no, we're we're far from being farmers. That's for sure. <laughs> Early on, we we started a relationship with the Omelins over in Quincy, Washington, where all of our grain is grown. Mm-hmm. So when we first started out, we actually were certified organic facility. We were making organic products. And it became a challenge to get consistent supply of grain that didn't have uh, live worms in it and all these different things, just because <laughs> of the organic farming pro- uh, process. And so we decided pretty quickly that Organic is not the way to go. People are drinking whiskey. Do they really care if it's organic? That was kind of our the thought we had. And so Orland did some reaching out um, to some grain suppliers, and we kind of had to have a specialty one because we needed it bagged in super sacks, delivered to us on pallets so we could uh, process it in our facility. And a lot of the big producers couldn't do that. And so uh, they gave Orland Arnie's name, and Orland contacted Arnie, and uh, that's kind of how the relationship started with him growing the grain uh, for Woodenville. And Orland can jump in and give more detail on that 
side of things, if you'd like? Yeah, so um, I don't know that there's a correlation between the Hill Rock identity and, and the estate grown and, and what we were doing. Um, obviously, uh, you know, we were developing the relationship with the small family farm in eastern Washington that, you know, we could have uh, as much control over the grain growing and quality process as possible. Uh, but certainly something that, you know, now is, is part of our brand DNA, this, this family and, you know, uh, it's not truly a state, you know, distillery because we're, we're not distilling and aging and doing everything there. But our barreling happens uh, on that farm, our bottling happens on that farm, um, our aging, uh, everything, you know, the grain is grown right there. And yeah, really a key part to just the overall quality control um, you know, mantra that Brett and I have. Gotcha. Uh, I'm curious, just as we, you know, kind of look to the future and, and we've kind of talked a little bit about the business side of this. Obviously, you're in Washington State. Obviously, you've got high taxis for your for the consumer there. You know, distribution, you know, in, in February, we had the Treasury report that maybe put the first kind of shake into the post-prohibition three-tier system. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But do you have direct-to-consumer sales uh, in Washington? Are you able to, to service demand directly within that state? And, and where do you hope sales of whiskey go uh, for you in the future? And by that, I mean selling to consumers, not your sales numbers. That's none of my damn business. Um, but, but what would help you, you know, grow? More whiskey. <laughs> more whiskey yeah we're just we're really limited on our growth by our, our available inventory obviously since our partnership with Moet Hennessy we've invested quite a bit in increasing uh, production you know uh, 6x volume increase on that side of things to, to try to help you know meet demand um, but no we're only distributed in about 20 states because that's all the, the and all of those states are allocated on, on what we are able to provide them on a given year. We are able to sell direct to consumers and ship to them within Washington state. That's really all we do. Uh, but you know, you ask a, a great question and it come from, you know, there's the, the business side of things and yes, would there be higher margins if I could go direct to consumer and, um, you know, and, and, and be removing some of, uh, some of, uh, you know, wholesalers and, and, and potentially some retailers, but those are also the people that have helped us build this brand, right? We, our yep. distributor relationships and the retailers and the, all of those people. So, you know, it, it's really difficult for me to say, yeah, I want to go direct everybody and, and take all that money when we have this incredible partnership with, with these people that have helped us build these brands. Um, so, you know, for me, more of the maybe direct to consumer through, through those avenues where our wholesaler, or excuse me, where our, where our retailers are able to, you know, uh, ship direct to, to consumers. Um, and, and we're seeing obviously a lot more of that with, with obviously the reserve bars and the drizzlies and the, you know, the different, um, places that we can, um, order from now, but it's just so, as you know, we can only ship to these States to disclaimers on the bottom when you're trying to get a bottle here and there. And I, I think it's just, it's just a matter of time until these archaic laws are somewhat, you know, opened up to create a bit of, of a more free market within the spirits industry. Yeah, I, I, I think your point is a really good one. You know, everybody wants to make more money if they could, but 
so many brands wouldn't be where they are now if they didn't have the right distributor, if they didn't have the right retailers backing them up. And all the sales, the sales team at the distributorships, the people on the, um, on the retail shop floors, it really is important. Um, which, which, I think is, which I think speaks to the good relationships and the good states. You then start to throw in franchise states where you might get picked up as an early brand, wait for you to get hot in other states, but maybe they haven't done much with you in that particular state. Um, so they've got you know, ownership of you. I, I think freeing up some of that could be beneficial for producers and certainly for consumers as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Look, especially in our evolution, one of the biggest blessings that was somewhat in disguise for Brett and I were we were just distributed in Washington State through 2017. And uh, that was much different business philosophy than a lot of craft producers that were, you know, selling in 20, 50 cases a month into a dozen, 20, 25 broad distribution states uh, versus we were, you know, our thought process was let's build a brand with roots in a market that we can support. You know, we're a young brand. We don't have million dollar marketing budgets, but we can get out on the streets. We can do events. We can meet people. We can be here in our home state and be a relevant player. So even though we were only in one state, we were competing, uh, you know, in, in sales from a volume standpoint with some of the largest Kentucky brands that you would, you know, at our price point. And then that allowed us, it gave us the strength, it gave us the roots here in Washington to be able to do what we've, you know, expand into to 20 states and just doing it the right way, which, you know, just like making whiskey takes time and, and discipline. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, Brad, did you want to add on to anything there? I'm good. I think Orlin pretty much covered it pretty well. Cool. Um, I, I've got... One more question. I know we're just hitting the hour mark on, on my recording here. Uh, I've got one more question, and then there's a question we always uh, throw out to get out of here. Uh, and now that I've framed it, I'm having a Joshua Hatton brain fart, and I can't remember what He's my question the worst. Was. I blame the uh, rye. I blame, <laughs> you should go 99% rye. I would have kept that one brain cell. Okay. Uh, Thank you for stalling for me. I got my question back. There you go. So we've been in this about a decade. You guys have been in this uh, about a decade. And, and this is a question that we get all the time from our own listeners. And I'm going to pitch it to you too. Um, as we've spoken today, it, it, it sounds like a wonderful journey. It sounds like everything that's gone right could go right. As you look back over 10 years, is there any one thing that stands out that if you could go back and do it differently, you would? We get that. We we've got that question before, and uh, you know we can get into the weeds on on little things and whatnot. But man, I I got to be honest. I feel blessed to the journey we've been on. It's 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 storybook. It almost you know it sounds a little bit cheesy, but to be able to accomplish, you know, to do what we've been able to do and then, you know, be able to come into the Moda Hennessy family, uh, an organization that, you know, the brands in that portfolio have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's, you know, where, where we all see Woodenville going together. Uh, you know, I don't know that I would have done much different. If you get want to get into the weeds with some of the products early on, but maybe we should have done a little more of this, or we, maybe we should have made a little bit more of this certainly can, can get into that. But, um, no, they're not, not nothing, not, not a big fundamental issue that I would ever, that I would change. Nice. Now we, we were pretty lucky, uh, especially I'll go back to Dave. I mean, he gave us a lot of good advice in the beginning and 
we we really followed it and we didn't really stray from that. And there's a lot of tough decisions as a starting business and especially in the whiskey world where we had to really make some tough decisions and you know, Orland and I would analyze it and really at the end of the day we would just trust our gut feeling and, and go with it and that that's the direction we were going and you know most of the time our gut was always right and it didn't seem right but we trusted our gut and we went with it and you know we're here today talking with you guys so obviously our guts were kind of right so <laughs> yeah no to be honest with you our answer tends to go along a similar path which is no we've actually made it through the first 10 years we're actually okay with how things went um our thing is always if we could buy more casks yeah at 10 years ago pricing yeah. or eight years ago or five years ago. Wish we could have done more of that in the moment. But other than that, yeah, we we mostly made right decisions along the way. So My answer to you was going to be the one thing I'd do different would be make more whiskey. Uh, but I remember those times we were making as much as we could, and I'm thinking, how the hell are we going to pay for this? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's, you know, it's, it's that game of, your business owners, you know there's risk. What level of risk are you comfortable with? And and then you only know with hindsight what you should have done differently. That's, that's the only way you ever know. Well, it's it's so funny because the, the bankers in the beginning didn't quite understand. So you're going to increase your production, but you're not going to see a dollar for five years? They didn't understand. They couldn't wrap their mind around that. That's a hard sell, isn't that? Gosh. Uh-huh. Oh man, if I I often have daydreams about about the bankers that said no to us earlier on. Uh I'd just love to go back to them and just say you had your position, here's where we are now. Thank you very much. It was a nice conversation. Uh, all right, so but that's all the past. With the past behind us, let's look toward the future. You've you're in 20 states now. Uh, you've been part of the the um, LVMH family for a few years now. What are you excited for moving forward with your production? Is it, is it more whiskey? Is it more states? Is it growing outside of the U.S. now that some of those tariffs have, have started to drop? What, what do you've got going on that is exciting you at the moment, next year, next five years? Well, generally speaking, I mean, from exact yes to all those things you just said from production and expansion and, you know, um, Brett's now running a, a very large operation that's producing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases a year. And, you know, we're, 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 we're kind of coming into that next level of uh, big boy distillery, if you will. <laughs> and it's a challenging operation for Brett. You know, we're, we're, we're constantly challenged with, with all of the, the dynamics that come along with that. I think, you know, f- for me, the uh, flexibility now to be uh, able to age products longer, to um, do different finishes now that we have a little bit of volumes you know, to play with mm-hmm. and really look at how we are going to enter those broader markets with our, with our core products um, and become, you know, a, a national and, and potentially global, uh, you know, global whiskey brand in the next decade. Beauty, beauty. Right. Yeah, I'm just like Orlin said, just having the volumes of whiskey for experimentation purposes. Obviously, we've done a lot of experiments on barrel finishing. I don't know if you guys have tried our port finish bourbon. Um, no. That was an experiment years ago that it was received so well, we it became part of our core lineup. 
in, in all of our hmm. markets now. Um, we've done a lot of experience. Every year we do a harvest release at the distillery where it's some kind of unique twist on our bourbon or our rye. Um, last year we did a Moscatel finished bourbon. Ooh, nice. Um, <laughs> we, had, we, we made a lot of it. We still have a lot available. It's still actually aging some more. Um, okay. But we got these 10-year-old Muscatel barrels that were very rare through the supplier that gives, gets us our port barrels. And it turned out phenomenal. So that's exciting because we have whiskey to start playing with different finishes. You know, I've done a Chardonnay barrel, bourbon finish, uh, a Syrah. Yeah. I've done a Madeira. Um, working on some mm. cognac and Armagnac finishes. Just all oh, kinds man. of different experiments going on right now. And, you know on a very small scale. And then, you know, our tasting room in Woodenville is kind of our, our testing ground. We get instantaneous feedback from the consumer. Uh, we can see the sales through the register on what products are resonating with the consumers. And that's kind of how the port really became a, a more mainstay product in our lineup. Okay. It's just by the, by the demand for it. That's excellent. That's, that's wonderful having that little loop where you can check you know, I think you were maybe saying this earlier, Orlin, which is you, friends and family can tell you a whole host of things. You can't lie to yourself, nor can you get money from consumers uh, when you're selling them something they don't want. So it's it's nice to have that um, kind of validity uh, in your back pocket as well. Validation, I think, is the word. Absolutely. Yeah. Our tasting room has been a key platform to our success, you know, like so many craft distillers, but we're in a very tourist oriented area. We, you know, we have quite a few people come through the facility and it's really part, you know, we can, we can learn a lot uh, just as much as they learn a lot about Woodenville. We can learn a lot from them and, and really, you know, uh, make sure we're doing the right thing with, with, with our products. Thanks again to Brett and Orland from Woodenville Whiskey Company. Uh, what a treat. We'll giving them their right. Sunday name. Oh. Woodenville three names. <laughs> Is that on their birth certificate? Woodenville Whiskey Company? <laughs> Distilleries always have birth certificates, yes. It is. That is. Woodenville three names is on their birth certificate. So company is the surname, right? <laughs> Whiskey is your middle name and Woodenville. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> you know, listening back to that conversation was good for me. I, you know, I've, I've told you this and I've told our listeners probably far too many times that that it's become clear to me I need to have a better understanding of the overall, you know, operations, the procedures of how to make bourbon, how to make rye. I feel as if I've got a much better understanding when it comes to malt whiskey, although just like you, it's still a learning, right? We're still learning all the time. But I, I feel as if my bourbon or my rye knowledge really needs to, to step up a little bit. And so it was nice listening back to the conversation. I'd forgotten that that you had asked that question about a sweet mash versus a mm. sour mash, right? Because they, mm-hmm. they do, yep. a, they do yep. a, a sweet mash rather than a sour mash. And, and it's so interesting when you look at you know, various bourbon labels, they always highlight sour mash, sour mash. Absolutely. I can count on a single hand the number of times I've seen sweet mash. I know that, um, oh, who are those people? They also start with a W. Woodford. Yeah, that's it. Woodford. Woodford has had released a sweet mash whiskey. 
I think you have mm. to be at a distillery that starts with a W to do sweet mashed whiskeys, so. right? So far, two for two on that Woodenville? analysis. Woodford? Oh, and they have to have woods in the in the word. Woods in the word. <laughs> Talk about, I don't know if you're in the woods. You're sailing in the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a really interesting thing to listen back to. And, and also... You know, you touching on on the yeast bit and the fact that they they played around with a little bit of champagne yeast to see what that did to their whiskey. And they found, you know, the champagne yeast was actually increasing the amount of alcohol in their, you know, in their, they called it a beer basically, but but in their, in their wash mm-hmm. and, and what that can do to whiskey. So it was nice. It was a good explorative conversation yeah. for me. Yeah, no, far ranging. And and I like it. It's, as we said, leading into this, that craft word is is always around. It's always in the background. And and maybe we'll we'll get to a point where we get to move away from the importance of that word. But to get into a nerdy conversation mm-hmm. with guys who have built this over the last 10 years have a reason for doing everything they're doing. It's really cool to, to pick at the process and start to ask some of those questions about you know, cask maturation and yeast, <laughs> mash. Like it, mm. Yeah, it was great. I, I really did thoroughly enjoy it. It was a, a real fun conversation. And like you, I, I learned a ton and I, I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much as I said I thought they would as we led into it. Yeah, I think I think another learning moment for me as well, we were talking about the rye, and I had asked, when you said mash, it reminded me of this, right? So I asked them what their mash bill was for their rye. And, right, I don't have a bottle of, of the Woodenville rye in front of me. I just, like you, I had the samples. But in mm-hmm. tasting that rye... Thanks to Elijah. Thanks to Elijah. Thank you again. But in tasting that rye, it had a softer entry. And mm-hmm. so, very much so. Based on the taste alone, I was working on an assumption that it was a mixed grain mash bill. And we came to find out, and I, if I just looked at the little sample label again, I, it would have said, you know, this is 100% rye. And it just goes to show you that not all rye is created equal that it can present itself in many different ways. And, and I'm sure that that gets down not just to grain, but also to, to process as well. Um, so if there's people out there who have been on the fence about rye, thought it's too big, too spicy, Woodenville may be the thing for you because it did have that softer approach and it did have that, I got that sense of, are there other grains here? It's not so boom in your face. It was more... Mm-hmm. Approachable, if you wanted a more approachable rise. So, so yeah, that that was that was again going back to that conversation, listening to it again, and educating myself on what grains can and can't do. Now, more more can do, depending on how you work yeah, with right. them. Yeah. Multifaceted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's let's get out of this portion here but can, can you give us a little bit of music don't wake the paper boy oh just give us a little bit of music because i'm gonna say something about rye on the other side of this music
have been informing our dear listeners about the transport of our backwoods Australian heritage rye bottling. Mm -hmm. And it had been at sea, then it had been waiting for a point of entry. It has since, (laughs) amazingly, found a point of entry into these United States of America. And the hope is that as this episode goes live, it may be on a four-wheeled vehicle, actually a six-wheeled vehicle, on its way to the warehouse in San Francisco. You are scaring me with the potential, you know, this is very jinxable. (laughs) This whole thing is very jinxable. Very jinxable. (laughs) Six wheels. What but we've come this far, wheels? right? We've come this far. March landing, April landing, May landing. Now here we are in the middle of May, and it might be getting to a warehouse sometime in the very near future, but also maybe not. So why are you dying? We're talking rye. I want to celebrate our our Australian. Arrive from backwards. Why are you dodging my question as to what vehicle has six wheels? <laughs> you, oh, see, you're clearly not a rural boy. For us down in the Shenandoah Valley, the Dooleys oh, yeah, all go Dooleys. by with their with their six wheels. Oh, I'm also thinking about a, a large delivery truck, whether it may potentially have two in the front and four in the back. All right. I just don't want to be solely focused on four-wheel delivery vehicles when six-wheel six-wheeled vehicles are out there doing good work as well. <laughs> we must recognize these six-wheel vehicles year over year over year are not being recognized for the hard work uh, that they've well, done. Tell you what was fun about just talking about delivery vehicles. What was fun about being in Chicago <laughs> was seeing an underground world of delivery trucks like so many buildings exist beneath what you would consider the main roadway of chicago like oh yeah it's insane what's that little portion where you drive underground the whammo whammit whacker whacker yeah it's whacker it is whacker yeah it's whacker that's where i got whacked in my car accident Miles, miles of whacker exists under the main frame of Chicago, and deliveries are happening all day long. It's wild. It's wild. That's wiggity whacker. Yeah, I, I love that part. So there you go. So I, I just wanted to give an update on the backwoods, see where things are going. We've got some other things releasing shortly, probably not going to be covered by this episode. So we will have a, a more full news in the next episode. Indeed. Jason, I would like to, and I, and I hope I hope you'll you'll agree. I would like to do two things before we get out of here. Oh, okay. Uh, and trust me, we're not getting out of here that quickly, anytime, or that easily. <laughs> but what I would like to do is see if we can give another blind barrels sample a, a go. Okay. And then we actually have. Two new comments that came in mm-hmm. on the Apple Podcast, uh-huh. right? See, we we asked our listeners, we said, please yes. give us a five-star rating and please say something when you give that rating. Make a comment and we'll read it on the podcast, on the podcast. And, and so people mm-hmm. have been. So I wanted to read one of the two before we get out of here. But before we read that, I would love to do another blind tasting and I would love for you 
yeah. to select, or, or, or you can fan out the envelopes and have me select which one we're going to do. You'll do the reading after we're done tasting. So I have a hunch. I have a hunch that we are re- revisiting this after we covered it in the last episode because we couldn't have been more wrong in our guessing. And you're going to disagree with me that it that we couldn't be more wrong. You're going to find all the things we did well. But we both guessed scotch, single malt, mm-hmm. potentially scotch blend, mm-hmm. and it turned out to be a Japanese single malt. Well, I will say... You're going to say, but... <laughs> I, I will say that you were 100% more wrong than I was because you... <laughs> Because <laughs> you went with a blend. What I would say the both of us got right, however, is I think the tasting notes worked out, right? When we read back Seabass's own tasting notes, some of, some of our tasting notes lined up, right? With the, with the sea hay and, and the fruitiness. <laughs> and so... Yeah, I think... I think you, yes. I, when you... <laughs> When you've been with someone, you know, you, you and I have been doing this together, th- these whiskey circles for uh, a dozen years, if, if not, you know, a, a little bit longer. But I'm trying to do math, just like you, Josh, you're doing math on the fly, ain't working. But so let's say we've been doing this for about a dozen years. It's so interesting that I knew I could set you up for that exact defense of our last blind tasting. I knew exactly what you were going to say. Huh. <laughs> and all of this has allowed me an opportunity to shuffle the envelopes So um, we shuffled last time and uh, I blindly chose A all right. We are shuffled this time, Joshua, and you are going to blindly choose uh, Which side is your right side? Okay, I would like the one all the way to the right, please That's the one, the very one Yep You, sir, have chosen Sample C. C. Oh, C. Give me some C words. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Consistency. Craft. Why? Where was your mind going, Jason? <laughs> Constable. I just knew you were setting you were setting me up. <laughs> Colonel Angus, the name of your cat. Uh, I knew you were setting Colonel me up. Colonel Angus. So. Um, yeah. So just very quickly, once again, Blind Barrels is a, a, a sample supplying outfit here in the United States, sending blind samples plus descriptions plus notes to your doorstep. Uh, check them out, blindbarrels.com. And the package comes with, at least the package that we got, came with four different blind samples. <laughs> you taste them, the reveal comes later. But... Just, you know, a reminder for our listeners, while in our last episode we tasted sample A and revealed what it was, in this episode we're tasting sample C and will reveal what it is. For those of you out there listening, these are not official blind barrel samples, so as not to give the game yeah. away for those who look to sign up, you know, we're tasting Seabass's, Christopher Sebastian's uh, own samples. So this is from his own collection here. <clears throat> if I was nervous the first time we did this, I'm really nervous the second time we're doing this. So I haven't poured mine yet, but this one has that sort of 
deep gold color, but <laughs> but you know, like first fill bourbon. Uh, I'm gonna make the exact same offer that I made in the last episode. All right. I'm gonna make the exact same guess. I'm gonna make that exact same guess four times because it's guaranteed <laughs> to be right one of those four. Right? There's only four whiskeys in the world. I gotta get it right one time. All right, here we go. So Okay, now this I'm getting a bit of peat on the nose. Well let, let back up. Let's take a look at the color again. Let's take a look at the legs. And I really liked what you did last time, Jason, with the with the shake test where you look at the bubbles and you try to try to guess an ABV <laughs> before we taste. Um yeah, what did you just say a second ago for the color? Like kind of a, a rich gold? Yeah, like a like a rich gold, you know, as if if this were a a twenty something year old Scotch whiskey in first fill bourbon, right? So it's it's got that sort of deeper bright gold going on. Tremendous legs again. Wonderfully, deliciously oily going on here. Wonderful unctuousness. Do you notice a, an unusual beading just at the top of the legs? What do you mean by unusual? Well, there's a lot of little beads that are staying where they are without turning into mm -hmm. legs for mine. I do. I have that ah, exact effect. Okay. Not all the way around. I do have some large droplets coming down the side and some oh, other spots. You, but... Grab a napkin then, Jason. Seriously. <laughs> this looks like Sometimes when I see that... That little beading that you're describing almost looks like like uh, like a seam mm, in a, mm -hmm. in an article of clothing. Yeah. Like just that real tight beat 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 beat. Agreed, but it looks like a drunk person was was sewing sewing the seam of love there. Sewing the seam <laughs> of love, the seam. Sewing the seam. Oh wow! So I, I haven't done the the shake test yet, but. The few times that I've nosed it, something is caught in the back of my throat. And it could be the fact that we are recording this early on a Sunday morning. And I'm, I don't really have my full alcohol legs about me just yet. Yeah. I, I, I also, so we'll do the shake test in just a second. The other thing for me is when I first poured it, I couldn't help. I gave it a swirl and I gave it a sniff. And I got this big, bright fruit coming at me. Mm -hmm. And then behind the fruit was something a bit more peaty, mm -hmm. a bit more yes. earthy. Yep. And now as we examine it and turn it and twist it, I'm starting to get something a little funky. Almost a little bit of that pickled onion, the, the monster munch, you know, crisps, which is technically a corn snack <laughs> uh, in, the, in the UK. <laughs> Uh -huh. But I, I've definitely got a little pickling going on in here on the nose. Yeah, I, so I did, I did the same, right? I, I went straight to the nose, and the first thing that I got was a shock of alcohol to the nose, right? It, it seemed like this is a very volatile spirit that's sort of stabbing my nostrils. So I'm, I'm going to guess just from the sniff test alone, I'm going to guess it's a, it's a higher ABV. And then I... I got what I thought was peat initially, and then the more I went back to the nose, the more I feel, is this some sort of a a funky sulfury quality, right, that you find in a Kregelki or you find sometimes in younger Mortlocks or something like that? 
Kragelicky did cross my mind from the noise. But then, but then I remember getting, and this was years ago, this was probably 10 years ago or so, getting a single cask of old Pulteney. And it was, um, it was their Clipper series. I, I forget hmm. what the Clipper okay. series is. And, and it was from an Amontillado sherry cask, and it just reeked of dirty socks. And it was the mm-hmm. sulfur, sulfury quality coming from the cask rather than from the spirit. Because Pulteney is not really a peated spirit. So it was a funk. And this has that, that, that similar kind of dirty sock, yet in a good way, kind of funk going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the bubbles are, are inconclusive. They're dissipating very quickly. If I was to hazard a guess, mm. I might say 52. Oh, wow. That low? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was, there was just not enough bubbles to go higher than that. I'm also huh. looking at it. Yeah. I almost hazard a guess between 48 and 52, but... If I if I trust the bubbles and believe in the bubbles, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the fifty two end of that. Interesting. See if if I were to trust my nose alone, which I shouldn't do because there's been plenty of sixty plus percent alcohol whiskeys that I've noticed that haven't stung my nose. This one is really stinging my nose. You th- you think more so than just an early yeah. Sunday morning recording? Yeah. 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 It, it could be. It could be that. Have you sipped it yet? I have. I have. After I did the bubble test, I took a little sip. Do well. Let's. Do you have any notes from the nose? Well, you you talked pickled onions, right? We talked a bit of sulfur. Yeah. Any fruitiness? Any nuttiness coming through? Not nutty, but I definitely in poking my nostrils around the edges. There's there's still fruit there. There's a little combination of fruit and funk. With something a little bit pickled and a little bit earthy. Yeah. It, and, and I'm trying to be, I would say, better than we were in the last episode where the grain suggested single malt uh, or, or at least you know, a, a malted barley component to it and our minds stuck to Scotland. Already you've said Craigellachie and I, and I agreed with that. Hmm. A little bit of that pickled onion had me thinking lechig, right? Yeah, it's not lechig, I don't think. Declarative statement. Declarative, (laughs) there you go. Um, But look, you and I have done this again, right? Where we got tripped up on the first sample, and it was Japanese. Here we are saying the same things we said that time, which is, okay, who who in Scotland is doing this? Mm. Can you expand beyond scotland and and get something familiar out of this takes us out of familiar territory potentially but you know as i'm tasting so i while you were talking i was i was giving it a go and i got some fruitiness giving me your full 25 percent. you asked me if i can go outside the scope of scotland i said potentially but i wanted to bring it back to the notes before i i I i wanted to explain my 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 experience to you, and obviously my experience means nothing to you, Jason. <laughs> no, the fact that while I was talking, you were tasting, you know when you're tasting, you're not listening. So I know that I had your full 25%. You had a solid 27%, Jason. 
<laughs> lies, more like 23. So as I was tasting this, I was getting a lot of fruit. Really, really tasted like sherry-driven fruit mm. coming through. Uh, but there was also a bit of butyric acid. There was that, that little milkiness going on, which kind of reminded me of, you know, what you get sometimes from a, uh, a lightly peated Glen Scotia. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes a brooklotti, but this doesn't really feel like a brooklotti to me. And so now, so if I'm, if I'm to open up the borders a little bit, Outside of Scotland, <laughs> uh, per your request. <laughs> I know that's not easy. That's not an easy request to make of an American is to open the borders, but do go on. You know our, our motto, malt first. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I've had any experience of whiskeys outside of, of Scottish single malt where I'd get a similar experience of sulfur or butyric acid. And I can't remember an instance where I did that. Maybe an odd Karazawa, but but I think that... Which, in my experience, burns hotter than the sun. Right, and that's why I don't think it's a Karazawa, because I can actually swallow this. I will say the nose is really delicious. I'm almost getting some kind of... Roasted marshmallow sweetness mm. building out of this. Oh, oh! There's like a like a baked apple quality to it in the front of the palate as well. It's so interesting on the nose. You know, after you take the first sip on the nose, that sort of sulfury quality kind of goes away a little bit. The fruitiness fruitiness sort of kicks in, and that second sip, I'm getting that baked apple. There's a bright sweetness there mm-hmm. that's followed by a bit of nutmeg, that's followed by a bit of mm-hmm. warm cinnamon. Which is why when you make that comment about the sherry component to this, yeah. I'm getting such an active bourbon cask mm. suggestion from that nutmeg, from that cinnamon. Like I feel... But, I feel like bourbon cask here, but I I liked what you said about some of that sulfury, a mm. little bit of those sherry fruits there. So, unless this is one of a couple of obvious things, I'm really I'm really lost on this sample. I think it's delicious, but I'm really lost on it. Oh, I, I would drink the living hell out of this. I, I think that this is uh-huh. absolutely, oh, absolutely wonderful. But yep, upon the reveal, I'm gonna check if any's available. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, I do. Want I like what you said about the Glen Scotia. I thought your Glen Scotia comment was a good one, but we're we're firmly in Scotland in our brains again. Yeah, I I, I do think we are. I, I I want to say, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, Jason. Mm-hmm. The nineteen-year-old refill sherry Krigeliki single cask. That we mm-hmm. that Holly turned us on to was fifty two percent alcohol, and you said you <laughs> thought that this was around fifty two, right? Could it be that? Like, remember how floored we were by that whiskey? But it's been a while. I since. feel like that had more pronounced sherry to it, but I'm going from pandemic memory of 
multiple years ago, three okay. years ago. So, so, so let me, because I was going to ask you ago. a question, and then I had that 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 rev, that revelation, that possible connection to a very specific bottling. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. you as you continue to nose this, as you continue to taste it, mm-hmm. and you think about that funky element. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's peat driven or sulfur driven, be it spirit or cask? Or a bit of both? Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer because I'm not believing in the sherry component as much um, as you are. I'm, I'm sold. At, at the same time, it doesn't seem to be expressly bourbon cask maturation. So I do think there's peated barley in play here. I'm willing to believe you that there is a sherried component to it. But I I like the baking spices that what I consider a bourbon cask to be delivering um, is delivering here. And I finished my sample. You talked about the drinkability of it. The question is, do you like it? <laughs> a, a thousand times yes I like it a whole ton uh, and, and aside from our Glen Scotia potential Lechig Craigelicky guesses I don't have much else up my sleeve on it so talking about liking it I, I poured a little extra because um, I finished mine as well alright I'm about to <laughs> so here we are gun to your head what is it gun to your head Jason what is it Krigalaki. I'm I'm thinking the exact same. I'm thinking it's a Krigalaki of some sort of sherry maturation. All right, age. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> give me give me a range. Like you know, even even I will give you the span of six years. <laughs> the bubbles were moving so quickly. I thought young. But the legs are moving so slowly, I thought old. Yeah. And so if if it's Krigeliki, I'm going to go down the path. And if you've given me six years each way, I'm going to say 13 <laughs> because I'm hedging my bets and I'm quite a smart person. <laughs> Look at you using math to your advantage. Uh-huh, mm. uh-huh. Yeah, I, I too am going to say Krigeliki. I really feel that it is a sherry cask, likely second fill, potentially refill, but a f- somewhat active refill. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that this is peated, which is why I think it's Krigeliki, oh. right? Oh, interesting. Okay, you think there's that, even from a tiny percentage of, of peated malt in there? Uh, right. But what, here's a good, uh, a, a very good example. Tam Du peats mm-hmm. their barley mm-hmm. to around 2 ppm and it's imperceptible it just comes through as as a facet of earthiness and then mm-hmm. if you go back to if you recall the Glenmorangie Finalta which was their peated offering again 12 you know 8 to 12 years ago that was 5 ppm but the peat was percept you could perceive the peat you could detect it and so if there is peat here, I would say it's not so much as 5 ppm like it was Glenmorangie. It's got to be a bit, for that Glenmorangie Finalta, it's got to be a bit less than that. I really think that this is a sulfur-driven 
funkiness, earthiness going on. Is the C for Kregelkin? We, <laughs> we did not have the chutzpah to open these ahead of time and cheat. And so I'm going to put the envelope close to my microphone and see if you can hear me ripping the... Don't open it. Don't open it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just holding it. Put it down. You don't need to open it. I didn't open mine last time. I just listened to you. Put the gun down, Jason. Put the gun down. Step away from the envelope. (laughs) Okay, so for the listeners, I never normally open envelopes like this, but for the drama of the sound, I'm going to open it like this. With your penis? (laughs) See, it's a a horrible way to open an envelope. That is terrible. All right. I hope that was pleasing to you. I would never open an envelope like that, but. Oh. Okay. Right. C is for. Oh, no, no. fuck. Of course it is. Ah, oh, shit. Oh, did we get it wrong? <laughs> we were so spot on with the funky, and there's a distillery we left out that was a mistake to leave out. Huh. Okay. There's also really good news on the way this didn't drink anything like its strength bottler mm. single cask nation son of a bitch all right now, now, <laughs> now hold on try to try to, let's do tasting notes before okay. the grand reveal okay, okay. tasting and notes. are they his or uh, do they look like ours if it's a single cask nation bottling so this is this is blind barrels take Seabass, <laughs> christopher sebastian writes i had to do it one of your own, and I know you guys enjoyed it this time around as much as you did when you picked the cask. This is a fun and one-of-a-kind pour for me, an introduction to the distillery. The rich earthiness, Mm -hmm. juxtaposed with the fruits found in their natural habitat, reminds me of walking through our office complex during citrus season Mm. and picking sun-baked citrus off the trees. And then he says in parentheses, yes, California is a sort of paradise. Close parentheses. (laughs) Final sentence, it makes me feel like a warm summer day sitting in the dirt under a tree in a field. Wow. Okay. Oh, I like those words. He's he's quite poetic. <sighs> that that Seabass. I I'll give you our truncated label note. All right. A study in contrasts: effervescent yet unctuous, drying yet juicy, salty yet sweet. Walk. You're gonna guess it from this sentence. Walk through a warm greenhouse. Smell the fresh potting soil. And pull warm fruit from the vine, and you'll have an idea of what this dram has to offer. It's a lot of fun. You and I wrote that truncated tasting note in a hotel room in Kentucky uh, at our last wild turkey selection. I want to say it's the Ben Nevis six-year-old. That's exactly There you go. There you go. Ben Nevis. We we identified all the funk and we didn't go to Ben Nevis because we're idiots. Wow. Look at that. (sighs) Yeah. Here's the the notes that are on the sheet here. (laughs) These might be ours. These might be uh, blind barrels. I think these might be blind barrels, actually. Aroma notes. Apple cider vinegar, pickled peaches, fresh squeezed Mm. warm lemon juice, Mm. fresh potting soil. Tasting notes, Meyer lemon, spicy sunshine, it's real, 
golden raisin, papaya with pepper, finished dried apple with white pepper, beautiful mouthfeel, oily and unctuous on the palate. So there you go. Wow. <sighs> we didn't say Ben Nevis. We got... Oh, and then the cask... Uh, cask type on this. It, it was a sherry gorda, right? The, the, the label said sherry butt, but it was a gorda, right? So, and it was a Montiado. And it was a Montiado, right? And what did I say about that old Pulteney clipper from an Amontillado sherry cask that gave <laughs> that kind of funkiness going on? And interesting that you you from the outset you you shook it and you you, you assumed the bubbles to be around 52%. Obviously you yeah, yeah, you were wrong. Yeah. But a, hugely. But upon sipping it 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 seemed like a low 50s ABV, but this was a mid 60s, wasn't it? 67.6. I would It doesn't Well, it is interesting though. We did both say Alcohol prickle on the nose. Yes, we did. A little bit of coughing in the first round yeah. of that, hitting the back mm-hmm. of the of the throat, and yet doesn't drink like it. The bubbles don't represent it. Bubbles are nowhere near sixty seven point six. That would be all bubbles in the shake test. <laughs> all bubbles. It'd be making new bubbles. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. Oh man, imagine. <laughs> I'm always. Yeah. Imagine if we tasted this and said, oof, this is terrible. (laughs) And that's what I was about to say to you is the takeaway from this is you and I said continually, boy, would I drink the shit out of this. I'm going to go look for a bottle when this Mm -hmm. this reveal is made. Mm -hmm. Really happy with that. Mm -hmm. Really happy. I'm totally bummed that we got the funk. And we didn't go as far as Ben Nevis Distillery. That was a mistake. We made a mistake there. Well, we did. You, you are right. We 100% did because Ben Nevis does have a funk to it. I would, Absolutely. I would say in our defense <laughs> that the Amontillado cask changes the way the Ben Nevis funk normally presents itself. But see, when you know what it is and you put your nose back in the glass, oh, it's, it's there. Nevis. It's all Ben Nevis all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, the Amontillado has not changed it that much. Uh, all right. Um, uh, thanks again to, to Christopher Sebastian, to, to Blind Barrels. Look them up, blindbarrels.com. Have some fun with your friends. <laughs> Say stupid, embarrassing things. <laughs> Miss distilleries that are patently obvious. Um, I'm going to be thinking about this one for a while, Joshua. <laughs> this one... This one, we missed a golden opportunity. You promised us an appreciation before we go. And unfortunately, I have to go. So, ah, yeah. What's our what's our appreciation, and then we got to get out okay. of here. Okay. So, so as as a reminder to our listeners, we, we asked you to go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five star review, and and write a little comment. And if you wrote a little comment, we would read it on the podcast. And here we are. And so, last time we read Cotton Ma's uh, little thing here. Now we're going to read. Are you ready for this? The person's name is Zipper Blues eighty two 
286. Are there 82,286 <laughs> people who also chose, 285 people who also chose Zipper Blues, and that was the first one? That's, that's weeks of entering in a username <laughs> to try and get approval. That's a lot. All right. Or are we looking at a zip code? Oh, oh, that's interesting. All right, little little uh, investigation. Anyway, the headline is Insightful Insider Pad Cost. Five stars. Ooh, well played. Well played. This is far and away the best whiskey pad cost out there. As industry industry insiders, Jay and Jay know the right questions to ask their guests and have a great rapport with them. Not only is it entertaining, but it's very nerdy. This pad cost lingers over the details and technicalities. If you want to hear about yeast and fermentation times and copper contact, it's all here. The only way this pad cost could be better is if they completed the Worm Tub episode. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that comment is so perfect for today's episode. It's all the things we've talked about. You know, leading into the episode, mm-hmm. uh, in, leading into the interview, coming out of the interview, like that's the details are where it's at, and I'm really glad that was it Zipper Blues, Zipper Blues eighty two two eighty six. I'm glad that they really get us, and I worry, I worry that if we ever complete and post the. Worm. The Worm Tub episode. I feel like we're going to lose ninety nine percent of our following. Oh, because, because they'll feel they'll as if have... it's been completed. Like like that'll be it. That's a close. That's an end scene. You'll know it's the last episode of One Nation Under Whiskey when we proudly announce that it's the Worm Tub episode. Oh my gosh! I think that's what we do at year ten. Whenever we decide we're done with this bad cost. <laughs> See, you named it here. <laughs> I know, I know, Jason. This is this is my failing. This is my failing. Hashtag, this is my failing. (laughs) For everyone who's waited for the Worm Tub episode, congratulations, you have ended a podcast. (laughs) That's great. I love love hearing that. I'm perhaps wrongly assume. Was that five stars, did you say? It was five stars. Very kind. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. I... I love, I say it all the time. I love that we have a following. I love that we've got inside jokes. I love that we can meet people along the way who can share those inside jokes with us. It's brilliant. I absolutely love it all. And so thanks ever so much. Zipper blue and then five digits. Eight, two, two, eight, six. <laughs> I love that you kind of committed. <laughs> I had to push some uh, right, old stuff out just to make that happen. All right, Jason, to, uh, to Brett and Orlin. Uh, for their time, we, we thank them greatly. To Elijah for getting us the samples for that tasting. That that was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I keep on saying to this person, to that person, they can't see it. I've, I've raised my glass. I'm holding my glass up. I'm raising my glass to them. Uh, to you, Jason, and to our listeners, <laughs> I say two chins and peace. Peace. Thank you.